All right, open your Bibles to page one. And this will be our last time I get to say that, so I'm just going to milk it for all it's worth. I'm just going to read, kind of follow along as you can. Uh, I'm going to skip the middle part because I think this is a very familiar text. But verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And then God said, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, and it was so. And he called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And he saw that it was good. And God said, and it was so. And God saw that it was good. And God said, and it was so. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the waters, verse 20, swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heaven. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And then God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree uh, with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God rested. And he finished all his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That is God's word. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give me, um, that you would anoint my mouth and my mind to speak your word this evening. I pray that every single heart in here that needs faith to believe that you'd give them faith. I pray that you would open up our minds and open up our hearts that we would see creator God and it would cause us to worship. Lord, I pray that it would lead us into worship. It would lead us into joy. I pray those that are in medical fields and, and science and biology, it would, teachers and educators, it would excite them to study this planet, to study what goes beyond this planet and see the fingerprint of God, to see God in everything, to see your handiwork that you called good, very good. I pray you would bring us back to that place 
we're in relationship with you, it's good. If we feel far off, distant from you this evening, I pray that you would draw us near by the blood of Jesus. Show us Christ today in this word, in your name, amen. Amen. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, um, says that the study of God, um, or, or theology, the study of God is an experimental science, he says. He says it's like science, experimental science, except one caveat. And he writes this in Mere Christianity. If you are a geologist studying rocks, and you have, to go to fi- you have to go to find the rocks, they will not come to you. And if you go to them, they cannot run away. The initiative lies all on your side. They cannot either help nor hinder. But suppose you are a zoologist and want to take photos of wild animals in their native habitats. That is a bit different from studying rocks. The wild animals will not come to you, but they can run away from you. Unless you keep very quiet, they will. There is beginning to be a tiny little trace on initiative on their side. Now a stage higher. Suppose you want to get to know another human person. If he is determined not to let you, you will not get to know him. You have to win his confidence. In this case, the initiative is equally divided. It takes two to make a friendship. When you come to know God, the initiative lies completely on his side. If he does not show himself, nothing you can do will enable you to find him. God has revealed himself. And this is, if you want to know God, if you're here this evening and you want to know God, or you want to be near God, God has made himself known. And it is true, unless God does reveal himself to you, unless God shows up and shows you himself, you cannot know him. You cannot know his nature. You cannot know his person. He must reveal himself to you. He has. God has revealed himself to us. God wants to make himself known. He is not the God who hides necessarily. He is the God who reveals. He is the God who speaks, and it is. He is the God who communicates. It says in Psalm 19 that the skies and the scripture, and yes, even our own souls, declare the presence of God. Declares that God is real. It declares that God is glorious. It declares that God is good. If you contemplate the skies, or look upon the scriptures, or even look into your own soul, you will be face to face with God. The skies, in the skies is revealed his glory, in the scriptures his greatness, and in the soul that knows him, his grace. And what Genesis 1 does, it brings all of these things into focus. Genesis 1 brings all of these components, all of these ways that God has made himself known. It brings it in nature, in scripture, and in humanity. God has made himself known in nature, and Genesis 1 proclaims that. We just read that. The scriptures make him known. Humanity, even in our own souls, cry out for God. This is why we started our series at the very beginning of the series several weeks ago, a couple weeks ago. We said that Genesis is a book about God. You have to read Genesis like this. I hope that you're reading this, you know, when you're at home. We keep on, like, tweeting and reminding you, everyone read Genesis And so I hope that you're reading it, but I hope that you're reading it like this. This is a book about God. This is a book that makes God known. The Bible concerns itself with the who more than the how. That's what we said as well. We come with all these questions. Okay, all right, so Genesis, how does God do it? 
um, wh- where are the dinosaurs at, and how long did it take, and how old is this earth? We come with this. When we come to Genesis, we come with the que- these questions, but Genesis doesn't tell you how it happened. Genesis doesn't tell you how long ago it happened. Genesis doesn't even tell you how God made it materially. That's not what Genesis does, because that's not the purpose here in Genesis 1. Well, if it doesn't tell you the how, what does it tell you? Genesis and the rest of the Bible's main goal is to show us God. When we read the scriptures, it's to show us who God is. It's to reveal to us what we need to know so that we can know God, his person, his character, to receive redemption, to be in right relationship with our creator, God. See, in this sense, Galileo was correct when he said, the Holy Ghost intended to teach us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. This is what the Bible reveals to us. If you've ever wanted to know who God is, if you ever wanted to, to study who God is, study scripture. In it, you will see God's character, God's nature. This is why I don't think that we should read Genesis as a book on modern science. There are many people who do. I don't think that Genesis is for that. If you went to biology class with, with the Bible as a scientific guide, this is how large it would be right there. One page. God, God chose to explain how he created the whole world on, in one chapter. One chapter. That's a very thin scientific manual. I don't believe that the Bible is a book on modern science. It is a book that, it, that speaks about God, the character of God, the nature of God. See, this is where Christians get really weird. Now, I'm a Christian, so I can say that we're weird. If you are not a Christian, you can attest that Christians are weird. Maybe even if you are, you're like, yeah, I'm a bit weird. And they get really weird when it comes to science and the Bible. That's the weirdest that Christians get. They get all, let me give you a couple examples. The belief that the sun rotates around a fixed earth was a theology that the church held to. Because it says in the book of Psalms that God has established the earth and it cannot be moved. So the earth is fixed and the sun moves around it. That was a belief. To the earth being flat, to that belief, because it says that the, in the Bible that the earth has corners, four corners, and condemning scientists when they believed otherwise. When science proved otherwise, like, no, 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 the Bible says it has four corners, therefore the earth is flat, and don't say otherwise, or else you're a heretic and we're going to burn you. This is what the church has done. Even when religious leaders condemn developments of manned space exploration, that has happened to the banning of barcodes because it was the mark of the beast in Revelation, to people believing that Apple products have something to do with the fruit that Eve bit in Genesis 3. Someone actually said that to me before. You use Apple products? I mean, have you not read Genesis chapter 3? I thought it was a pomegranate or a fig, but they think it's an apple. The Bible is scientifically satisfying. We talked about that three weeks ago, so go back and listen to that if you think I'm speaking otherwise. It is scientifically satisfying, but you'll have to go back, and, and I want you to listen to that part in Genesis, but the thing is, is that it is scientifically satisfying, but Genesis 1, what is Genesis 1 speaking of? There's a quote that I wanted to share several weeks ago, but I didn't get a chance to, so I'll share it now. It goes like this. If God were intent on making his revelation correspond to science, meaning the revelation, his word, his revelatory word, 
If you were intent on making, so let's say, the book of Genesis correspond to science, we would have to ask, which science? It's a great question. We are, we are well aware that science is dynamic rather than static. It, by its nature, science is in a cons, uh, constant state of flux. If we were to say that God's revelation corresponds to true science, we adapt an idea contrary to the very nature of science, which is accepted as true today but may not be accepted as true tomorrow because what science provides is the best explanation of the data at that time or at the time. The, this best explanation is accepted by consensus and often with, with a few uh, detractors. Science moves forward as ideas are tested and new ones replace old ones. So if God aligned revelation with one particular science, it would have been unintelligible to people who lived prior to the time of that science and it would be obsolete to those who live after that time. Does that make sense? If God, if God lined up Genesis 1 in accordance with our science in 2011, the people, the first listeners would have been like, what? What does that even mean? I mean, they, they literally thought ancient cosmology was the, 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 the sky was, a, was solid. The, the sky was solid. They, they thought that. And God didn't find it, like, funny to go, I'm going to rearrange everything you think. He spoke to them in their language. So our job is to understand their language. Isn't that what interpretation is? Understand Hebrew and their culture and then interpret it. That's our job as people who want to know what God says through his word. So neither proper exegesis of the text nor science will allow for this sort of reading in Genesis 1. So if we can't read it like that, or we shouldn't read it like that, how should we read Genesis 1? Because it's authoritative, let me tell you that. I mean, we, we read this, and, and we have to apply it to our lives. As followers of God, we take this, and we're like, what way, in what way should I live? In what way should I follow you? And what should I believe about God? And what do I believe about me? And how do I see the world? How do I shape a worldview around Genesis 1? It's, it's not just some poetic thing. We have to shape our minds around it. So how do we do that? Well, let's ask this question again. What does it say about God? And when you read something like this, something becomes very apparent. What does Genesis 1 say about God? Well, first it says that God is a God of power. God is a God of power. I mean, look at the power he has. Did you, did you just follow along there? It, it says this, and God said and it was. God said and it was. God said and it was. There's, there's something more significant that the author is, is saying and trying to get across here than the fact that God made something. Because if you read the text really carefully, read Genesis 1 really carefully, God doesn't create or make or manufacture something every single day. So, the author here isn't trying to get across to us, the audience, going, the main point here is that God made something. Actually, the main point here, the point of this creation account is not that God made something, but God said something. That's the main point of Genesis 1. God said something, and it was. God said something. God is the God who speaks. I remember when the very first time that God spoke to me. I mean, I, most of you guys know this. I didn't grow up in church. The very first time God spoke to me, as it says in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, has shown in our hearts and has revealed the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ in the face of God. That God who said, let there be light, and there was, I remember that first day where he spoke to my heart and he said, let there be light into my heart. Into my, into my mind, into my, like, my whole being, and I, I, I dropped everything to follow him. I remember that moment. 
God is the God who speaks. He's the God who speaks, and by his word, there's power. He's communicating something. In Genesis 1, he's like singing creation into existence. He's giving the world a purpose. He's creating it and ordering it. The world responds by doing what he says. You see, do you see that there? Not only does God say something, but the, the world goes, okay, let there be light and light goes light. Let there, be, let there be night and the night goes night. Let there be swarms of living things and the living things swarm around. Let there be birds in the sky and then there's birds that, that order the sky. Let there be plants that come out of the ground and then plants obey. God is a God of power. He says something and then it, it, it is. Psalm 19 personifies this beautifully. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's like the heavens and the, and, and the sky above, it says, proclaims his handiwork. It's like the sun, the moon, and the stars are traveling preachers. They like go around the whole earth and they keep preaching and proclaiming the glory and the power of God. Like you see a cloud and the cloud's going, the glory of God. Stars, the glory of God. The, the thing that the pictures that the Hubble telescope takes, the glory of God. All of it declares. You guys see that little um, Genesis icon thingy, logo thingy we made or graphic we made? You guys recognize that picture from the Hubble telescope? It's called the pillars of the earth. These beautiful, like, and, and, okay, I can't even get into this. I'll, I'll start nerding out in a second. So, all of this stuff declares, it speaks to us, it, like, they, it, it preaches. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. God speaks, and creation reacts. God says, and creation does. You see this interplay between creation and creator? This glorious dance almost between God steps this way and creation steps that way. God says go here and creation goes there. And then he makes it to work perfectly, to function in order where the scientists today, are, their minds are still blown by the order of it all. And God says, and it is. And you also see that there's no vacancy for multiple gods here. God said, and there was. This chapter does not leave room for an eastern God or a western God or the God of this tribe or the God of that tribe. Genesis 1 is a, a polemic against the, a multi-faith world. It's a polemic against a multi-faith society. We live in a multi-faith, a multi-God society. The Bible isn't foreign to this. The Bible was written in such a context. So in Genesis 1, the sun and the moon are not God's. The beast of the sea or, or of the land are not antagonistic creatures to be defeated. The seas and the sky teem with living creatures. Why? Because God says and they are. The sun rules the day and the moon rules the night, but God rules it all. Why? Because he made it. One God. So one author writes, Genesis teaches that God is sovereign versus atheism and wholly other than this universe versus pantheism. The only true God versus polytheism. The creator of this universe versus naturalism. Who has made a covenant with this creation and upholds it versus deism. And made human beings in his image to manage the world on his behalf versus hedonism. Genesis further teaches that God is not 
the source of evil, but created everything good so that his creatures can enjoy the physical world versus Gnosticism. Genesis 1 is a polemic against idolatry, that you would worship any other thing but creator God. So Isaiah, the prophet, puts it in his own words when he says this in Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Or do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. To whom then shall you compare me? What that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out the host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not be faint. God is the God of power who sustains the weak. And not just that. You see in Genesis 1 that God is a God of purpose. God is a God of purpose. This chapter is carefully put together to make this point. God is a God of purpose and, cre- and created this world to be one of purpose. God gives purpose to light, right? That's what he says in day one, let there be light. When, when God says let there be light, you imagine a physical light created. Okay, but God calls the light day, and we all know that light is not day. Day is a function of light, and darkness and light coexist. They don't, they're not supposed to coexist, so he's not really talking about material here. He's talking about function. What God is doing is he's creating the function of light. He's saying, imagine it, light being bright all the time, all day long, right in your face, a blinding light. That's not helpful. And God knows that. And God says, let there be light, and let there be night, and let there be day. And he gives function and purpose to both of them. He gives seasons, time, to everything. He's creating the function of light, the material of light here is already created. And he's given it function. He's giving it order. So there can be night and day. So there can be 24 hours. So there can be, as it goes on, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, six and seven. God is a God who gives purpose and order to the sky and the weather. He creates the function of weather. He gives rain in its season and sun in its season. He orders the cosmos in such a way that, that it has the right amount of precipitation. Because too little and we starve and too much and we're overwhelmed. So God creates it just perfectly. God gives purpose to land and soil and trees and seeds so that God makes plants to bear seeds so that seeds grow into new plants and so on and so forth. God gives purpose to the, and the function to the stars and the sun and the moon. For what? What does it say? For signs and for seasons and for days and for years. To rule over the day and to rule over the night. He gives purpose and function to the birds of the air 
and the fish and the beasts of the sea. He makes them and he gives them purposes. God gives purpose and function to animals. God gives function and purpose to humanity. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, which means the earth is very theocentric. It's all centered around God and for God. However, God has no needs. So when he creates the world, he creates it very anthropocentric around our needs so that humans can dwell on earth rightly. He creates it for us. He calls it good in relation to how we would live on the earth. He creates it good, it's good, it functions so that when I place my image bearers inside of it, they can function here. They can live here. They can subdue the earth and be good stewards over what I created. God creates it all and he says, it's good. God gives the function and purpose to everything we see. God is a God of purpose. And what this means is that this sense of order means that there's actually something to explore and investigate in this world. We don't live in a random chance world. God made it to function in a certain way, and because of that function, we have science. If there wasn't order, science couldn't measure anything. And if you want to see the greatest work of the Creator, if you really want to meditate on the Creator God and creation, His creation and His work, it's not simply found in the fact that materials are brought together. Think about it. It's not the fact that he just brought something to be. It's actually he, that he brought it to be and he brought things together and that they work. He brought things in, in a way in which they work together. He brought things together in such a way that something like photosynthesis works. I mean, I remember when I was in elementary school and I first learned about photosynthesis and I was tripping out. And then when I got into high school, more so. To think that, that plants like breathe in our waste and breathe out what we need and vice versa, that's pretty much the, the dummy version of that, of photosynthesis, but you guys get the point. That, that, that it works in that way. God's like, it's good. Anyone who studies photosynthesis is, is like, that's, that's really perfect design actually. That's really good design. God says, it's good. And your eyeball is just tissue. But because God made it in such a way, you take in color. You take in movement and depth with your eye. It's absolutely amazing. And God said, it's good. Every single thing, from weather to the currents of the ocean to the way the crops grow, to the way that your body takes in things and burns it for fuel, everything. God says, I made it, and it's good. God is a God of function. God is a God of order. I read this article this last week. It was called, What I Wish My Pastor Knew About the Life of a Scientist. So I read it, and it was a really good article by Andy Crouch, who's actually married to a scientist. And I just want to read you a, 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 one small little paragraph in it. He says, Indeed, as we have progressed further into humanity's scientific era, we have been able to disabuse ourselves of, the, of a mistaken early notion that the more the world becomes comprehensible, the less it would be wonderful. 
It turns out not to be true at all. Just ask any scientist. Wonder grows as understanding grows. Indeed, wonder only grows if understanding grows. If we replace our childhood awe of lightning with an explanation, like it's nothing but a transfer of voltage across a highly resistive material, perhaps the world will seem like a less wonderful place. But those who actually pursue knowledge of lightning, of electromagnetism, or cloud formation, or weather systems, or climate, end up being more in awe of the world than they were as children. This is surely one of the remarkable features of our cosmos. The more we understand about it, the more we are in awe of its beautiful elegance and simplicity, and at the same time, its humbling complexity. So if you are in fields of science or medicine or biology or in education, as you know more about creation, you see the wonder of creation, the function of creation, it causes us to say, my God has done that. That helps me see the nature and the care of God. And even if you think about it, what, what, is, what is a doctor? A doctor is one who's trying to remedy and care and relieve and cure what is broken and sick, not functioning in the divine created order. I mean, apart from God creating and calling it good, we have no, how, I mean, how do you even measure health? How do you know when you're sick? How do we know that cancer is bad? How do we know that the lame and the deaf and the blind are not the way it's supposed to be? How do we know this? Because we all have a collective memory of Genesis chapter 1 where everything was good. Cornelius Plantinga says the only way we knew we know how many ways human life can go wrong is because we know how many ways human life can go right. So look at this. In Luke chapter 7 then, when Jesus comes on the scene and he starts preaching the gospel, one of his, one, uh, John, um, who baptized Jesus, John the baptizer, goes to prison, just about to be beheaded. In a moment of kind of sheer panic and a bit of humanity, he sends his disciples to Jesus and saying, you go ask this Jesus guy if he's really the one. Because I'm in prison. I'm about to die. If he's really the Messiah, why am I here? Ask him, is he the one or should we look for another? So the disciples run to Jesus and they go, Jesus, John wants to know if you're the one, if you're the Messiah. If you're the one that's promised, if you're the one that's going to bring all the, all the wrongs to right, if you're the one that's going to restore it all, are you the one or should we look for someone else? That's how Jesus responds. Go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. See, the blind have eyes but can't see, the lame have legs but can't walk, the deaf have ears but can't hear, the dead have bodies but have no life. I mean, do you see what's happening when Jesus breaks into time and space, when the metaphysical becomes physical and Jesus comes on the scene. Do you see what's happening? The sign of the Messiah, the promised Savior, is that he's bringing function, order to things that are broken. He's restoring things. He says, I'm the God who made this work at the beginning. Be healed. 
But if you notice something, something happened between Genesis 1 and where we're at right now. Genesis 1 and what happened in Luke 7. We all know something has happened between when God created it good. We were created and we were at one time approved by our creator. At what time all of us had this, and I think we all have this collective memory of this, when we were in relationship with God, when it was good, when we lived in God's blessing and God's peace and the good of God, we all, meaning the human race, lived there at one time. But now the Bible describes us as sheep that have gone astray. And we live, all of us live it to some degree, like the world revolves around us. We live like it's about me. And we say we know what's good. We say, I know what a good relationship is. I know what a good life is. I know what's good. And every single time, I don't know if you've, if you've experienced in life, whenever you kind of hold on to things as good, like, I know what's best for me, it brings chaos. It doesn't bring order. I mean, so how do we get back to Eden? How do we get back to peace? How do we get back to rest? How do we get back to rest so we're not like striving to be something, to keep striving? And, and I'm, I'm telling you this honestly from someone who still strives a bit. How do we all get back to this rest? Day seven. Day seven's the hardest thing for interpreters who believe in a material, Genesis 1 is material. Like when God said, let there be light, it was physical light. He's talking about only physical light and everything was, the hardest thing is like you get to day seven and God rested. What did God, what did God do on day seven? And then what did God do on day eight? When you understand Genesis 1 as God bringing function to the world, this is what God does on day 7. God sets up the world for it to work in his divine order as his temple, Isaiah says, where he dwells. And then day 7, what he does is he rests, but our rest, our rest and ancient rest is completely different. Our rest is like... Um, TV, couch, nap. Rest, ancient rest was when everything was in order. A king would rest sometimes in his garden when his kingdom was at peace. When everything was working the way it was caused to work. And he was overseeing it all still. The rest in day seven is God going, I made it to function this way and I'm resting, meaning I've created this way, and I'm still controlling everything as it's perfectly functioning. So when we're called the Sabbath, our Sabbath looks like this. Our rest looks like this. It's not our rest. It's actually entering into his rest. It's saying this. You're in control, God. I can take a day off of work. I could take a break. I don't have to work myself to death because you're really in control. My job comes from you. Things are maintained by you. I am not the God of this universe. I'm going to rest in you today. I'm going to rest. So then you, you get this in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. If you ever studied the book of Hebrews, you have this bringing up again of the rest of God. People failed to enter God's rest. But the promise is still there. You can still enter God's rest. You know what's repeated three different times in chapter 3 and 4? Is this verse here. If today you hear the voice of the Lord, do not 
harden your hearts. Tonight, if God is speaking to you, do not harden your heart. If God is saying to you, enter into my rest, enter into my peace, stop thinking that you ordered this world, you didn't. Stop thinking that you control this world, you don't. Don't harden your hearts. Enter into God's rest. The only one that can bring us back in is Jesus. The only one that can bring us back into peace with God is when God took on flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, died on a cross for our sins, and rose again to new life. The promise that we too will will rise as we sang. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I thank you that it is authoritative, even though it's narrative, it's authoritative narrative, and this is how we're supposed to believe, that you are the God who created everything. And Lord, I repent for trying to control my own little world. I repent for thinking that I have to do this or that for it to function rightly. You are the Lord, and there is no other. I pray tonight that we would find rest for our souls as we trust in Jesus. Give us that rest, God. Bring us into peace. Bring us into created order. God, we repent for thinking that we know what's good. You, Lord, you know.